From the Lucha Podcast Network, this is the Mass Startup Podcast. The Mass Startup Podcast profiles the most talented creators, impactful entrepreneurs, and high-performing professionals with the purpose to drive insights, learnings, and tactics to help you build the things that you believe in. I'm Mawetu William Anderson Soga, born and bred from the Eastern Cape. I am the co-founder and head of growth and commercialization at Fixer, Corapair Maintenance Stock. How would you say you got started? Like, what was the first memory you have of trying to build something of your own? Because I always think that the journey begins a lot earlier than people say. But we always see the, oh, this is working out. Yeah. I want to I wanna know, like, what was the first thing you tried to build? And you're like, oh, yeah, I might do this for the rest of my life. Yeah, I'd, for me, I don't think it came naturally. Mine, it was just about having fun and doing things with friends. Mm. So me, it was more... um hosting parties, having fun. It was always something that was of interest, but it was more, I want to do more things with my friends, like with everyone back in the mm. day. Let's start a t-shirt company. Let's do this. Amen. <laughs> where did the t-shirt company go? Because yes. like, that was the, the initiation yes. for most entrepreneurs. Yeah. Let me start making a t-shirt. You know, Everyone loves this yeah, t-shirt. Yeah. They're going to they're gonna go play. Yeah. And then you do a party and then you, yeah. all the other other than yeah yeah so i mean mine is the exact same focus and then i think i think somewhere along the line it was 2010 world cup failing in school not doing well but still you know enjoying myself having fun you have all these internationals within Kabeha and you and it's a great time and i was standing next to my friend and i don't know why i was just like the party doesn't last forever everyone is going to have to go home eventually and he was like what and i just said it again and then Sometime in the weekend, he's like, why did you say that? And I'm like, I just feel like we're done with this now. We need something else. And then he'd heard from a friend of his about IFA, the network marketing company. And he's like, Mm. hey, man, let's try this out if you're keen. And that was just basically using network marketing and selling insurance. And we did that. It was annoying. We're terrible at it. But I just wanted to get out of this environment and this thing we're doing and it's not working Mm. and then i had a friend i was seeing on facebook she keeps flying to joburg or cape town and things like that and i'm like friend what do you keep flying for and then she introduced me to isec which is the world's largest youth organization they had a chapter in in port elizabeth at the time and she was like come join and see what it's like i just wanted something different and then they were working on social projects all the things that the youth organizations did and i just started working on that like if you we needed to do computer training lessons I just shifted myself into trying to help this organization do what it needs to do. Six months later, I was then voted in as a president of the organization. And then I started building up ISEC in Port Elizabeth. And that was probably my first um, teeth into really building something or building an organization quite early on. What was the focus of this like organization? And like, what were the things that you were learning out? Yeah, I think so. ISIC's primary focus is obviously youth development, but it's it's globalized. So you have a lot of youth, if you're looking for internships in Argentina, they'll link you up with companies there. And then your job is to take students from South Africa and match them up to partnerships in Argentina. And then the Argentinian chapter will try and match up students from Argentina to companies here in South Africa. So your local chapter is trying to find companies that are willing to take in students. And then we also sponsor youth development programs. Like our main one was an apprentice challenge for students. Mm. So that's what we build there. And we'd, we'd really run these tasks that are then funded by corporates, Procter & Gamble, Sunlum, et cetera. And students would do this challenge and sometimes they'd get hired for internships and the like. So it, would, it was that kind of organization where you need to build workable and employable skills for young people. 
And then you as the organization are the ones that are implementing these projects. Oh, that's the, when did your sort of corporate career kick off? Yeah. I mean, so once I got into ISEC, I was, I was kind of doing that for a few years, still not really doing well at school. And then I think it was about 2012 or so I was walking down the, down the labs at school. And there was this guy who was out there. He was a worker in blue overalls and he was very excited. It was graduation day and I was just chilling, you know, failing a few subjects. I'm not graduating today. <laughs> um, and he was quite excited and I'm like, what's up? And he's like, man, I never thought I would see a place with a, a large amount of black students graduating. I never had these opportunities. And he was just elated and happy for the people there. And I just thought to myself, I'm wasting this opportunity that's provided for someone who never had the chance and he's happy for us. Mm. That day I went to go watch um, the graduation and I was like, this is the last time I'm going to be watching from this side. Yeah. And that's when I got into studying business management properly. I moved from economics and statistics, moved to business management, studying my books and trying to focus on being this business individual. And banking was my my key core focus. I then graduated two years later and I said, let me focus on my honors because obviously I had this long five-year period on a three-year degree and, and now let me do my research and focus it on banking and my honors will give me a clean slate. And then I focused on my treaties on analyzing the financial sector over 10 years and their financial decision-making, specifically dividend policy. And then now when it came to interviewing for these banking roles, I was like, right there on the mark. I remember when I had the APSA interview, I was walking to the labs. We had this back route around the bushes and the lady was like, are you fine for the interview? And I'm like, ma'am, it doesn't matter where I am. If it's banking, That's I know fine. this. Yeah. And then I, I, I got into Standard Bank graduate program through that. And then, yeah, the rest was just kind of history. How do you think like, you know, whether it's the social or youth focused, you know, programs that you're doing with the organization, your journey through university, which wasn't like, and people will say, you know, record time, whatever it is. What did you learn about yourself through those experiences? Because like you're really trying to just figure out what you're really good at and what your focus should be. Yeah. And eventually it was banking. What's that journey look like to really figuring out what's the right thing to do? Yeah, I think it's funny now when I speak to friends, they're like, oh, this all makes sense because Moetu, you were like this and like this. And I'm like, what? I mean, I never recognized that. They said, mm. you were great at strategy. You were, you were good at, at ideas and stuff like that. I'm like, what are you talking about, guys? I think for me, I was just focused on what was in front of me and what I'm trying to do. Like the other time, it was just very simple. Hey, man, friend, you're flying around the country. What are you doing? You're in ISEC. Cool. What's ISEC? Cool. How do I get good at that? And then the next thing, okay, cool. School is the focus. I want to go into banking. How do I get good at that? So, which is why I always say for me to people, I don't believe in following your passions, follow your gifts. The younger you are, I think passions make sense because you can probably align, you know, maybe it's fit your passion is golf. You can do enough training that when you're older, it becomes your gift. But I think for me, I remember I was sitting in the stats and two, two of my fellow students, they were working out a proof, a mathematical proof on the, on the board. And I'm, we're busy studying. It's a tut. And these guys basically figured out that proof for fun, just chilling there. And I was like, I'll never be as good as these guys. And then that week I quit stats and I moved to business management economics. And I'm like, I'll never be as good as stats as they are. What am I kind of good at? I feel business management and economics. That's my, my field. Let me go there. And there I was as good as those guys in that. So I didn't not figure anything out. Each time I reached a problem and then I, I you know, I sort of made a shift and then I thought to myself, 
what else should I do? And then I, I moved. But it takes a lot of self-awareness, right? Yeah. Like to confront yourself and say, yeah. you know what? I'm not going to be this good, man. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the feeling. I'll never forget it. <laughs> I'll never forget it. How, how, how important has self-awareness been throughout your journey? I, I think it's, it's, it's been quite key. I think scanning the market and self-awareness, because I think I've been quite good at seeing, okay, where's there an opportunity for me to, to go into? And then also what skills do I have? Then what's the bridge that's needed there in terms of learning? And then go in there. And now it's become a key skill set. Even within my career, when I sit in interviews in a two-year period, I'd always change to different roles or different fields. I'd clearly outline that you're not hiring me because I have, have been in this field or not. You're hiring me because I've clearly shown a capability to get good at being good at things very quickly and achieve. And that's, that's for me is my difference maker. It doesn't matter what it is or in a different space. I can quickly learn what needs to be done, then quickly apply it and then get out of it. That's powerful. You said that like so casually. Because oh. if I heard that yeah. in, in an interview, yeah. I'd say that's the guy to hire yeah. because whatever we're going to throw at him, and that's what startups mostly are, is just you having, you know, a bunch of people who might not necessarily know everything about everything, but they're willing to learn and like throw themselves into things as well. Going into your career at Standard Bank, you know, as a senior solution subject matter expert, that's so technical, at Standard Bank, can you speak about the work that you're doing there? Yeah, I mean, I was sitting within a role as an enterprise development manager, and that's where I was financing Black-owned businesses at the time, and we're working on different types of financial applications, funding these spaces. And at that time, I'd, we'd also started Fixer mm. a bit there. Now, you know how hard it is to be working and then also have, you know, your, your side hustle at the time outside. I wanted to be able to align my entire world to technology. So I needed to make a decision. And then there was this role called a senior solution subject matter expert, which then merged every single skill. It was a strategy role. It was a digital role. And then it also included, a, you know, this business marketing role, et cetera. I'd had such a general career because I'd moved around. Mm. I was like, now we've created the perfect role for Maui to let me, let me move into that space. So it, it was product management at some level, but it also included strategy and business and deciding what Standard Bank needed to do with technology. And it was focused on small businesses as well, which I'd previously funded and financed and I'd studied. So I knew how to, how to deliver towards them. And then included leading developers, designers, analysts. And then we, we take these problems that we found. We take these, um, issues that we want to solve for the business, like increasing revenue and et cetera. And then we funnel them down into some feature or mm. product. And then we build it. So the digital banking application specifically for small business, that's what we build every day. So when you log into our app or when you log into the website, the online banking side, that's what we'd be building. Every what was something that you sort of noticed about South African small businesses during that time or learned about them? Yeah, I guess it was tough because I came in 2019 and 2020 was then the pandemic. Damn. So it was, it was a very tough. <laughs> so I came in excited. Next minute, we had a pandemic and all this remote work. And, you know, it's so sad because the majority of this team, these people that I've grown to become brothers and sisters with, we've known each other through a screen. We didn't have enough time together on the ground. But I think one thing with, with the business is extremely resilient mm. in South Africa, extremely. But yeah, I think the pandemic hit everyone for a six. But I think resilience. And I, I'd learned that previously when I was working on agriculture 
and manufacturing in the financing space, but there's a strong resilience, but they're not digital. But one thing the pandemic did was push everyone onto that online space that was sitting there. And that's one thing that we saw. Now we needed to do a lot more to be able to support these guys on the ground and get ready for it, but a very resilient business space. So how did, you know, all this journey start to form who you need to be to start, you know, Fixer? Or maybe let's go back to what is Fixer yeah. and when did this come up as an idea, as, as a pursuit for you? Yeah. So, I mean, Fixer started with our co-founder, Curtis Young. He's one of our, my boys. We went to Varsity together. We also worked at Standard Bank together. Everyone says they met their co-founder at Voss. Straight. All three What's of us. that about? <laughs> I, do you know what? I think it's a trust thing. And we were speaking yeah. about this before we started. It's a yeah. trust thing. I mean, we all knew each other. In fact, I found out that my Bulela is my cousin only after we started a business together. Oh, wow. I posted a picture and my aunt was like, oh man, you started a business with your cousin. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'd known them being around the house and stuff. I just did not know that they were family at the mm. time. But yeah, all of us at some period were together and Curtis was just like, you are the two people I'd like to start a business with. And you do this trust. It was honestly just trust. Yeah. Yeah. So what is Fixer? Cool. So Fixer is a car repair and maintenance startup. We're a mobile mechanic startup. You go online, you work on our platform. We manage payments, reminders. We send mechanics to your place with the parts and they, they, they fix your vehicle within your, in your driveway. And I think that started with Curtis when he was still a full-time entrepreneur. And he had an issue with his car and engine light came on and like every other human being, they ignore it. And then a very small problem became a big problem and he's turbo blue. And now instead of a few thousand rand, he had to pay tens of thousands of rands to get it fixed. Didn't have money at a time. He was at a bri with a friend. There was a mechanic there, Dave, which was our first mechanic. And he's like, man, I can sort this out for you at a much more affordable price. Everything was done. Curtis being Curtis kept mulling in his head. And then he's like, wait a minute, this might be a problem over December. And Curtis being Curtis, instead of enjoying his holiday, he built the entire website and he's an accounting major, by the way. He taught himself how to code while working at Standard Bank, literally built this thing in December over 30 days, came to us in January. By April, we launched. Wow. That can stay. <laughs> how important is it to really encounter the problem that you're trying to fix as a start? Because I do think that, you know, a lot of the, you know, everyone talks about startups having to be anchored around a problem that you want to solve in a very big way. How important it is that it's a personal experience that you encounter and you try and like build a solution for it in that way? Yeah, there's differing views. We even have differing views within us as three founders. For me, that's not relevant, right? I spent my entirety of my seven years in corporate solving problems that weren't personal to me. So for me, it is just problem worth solving and then you do what you need to do to solve it. I don't drive. I don't have a license, mm. but I am a co-founder of a car repair and maintenance startup, right? I didn't wake up saying, hey man, I want to fix cars. I just, when Curtis brought this to me and this environment and I'd done a few things. I had an agency, I had a talent management thing that didn't work out. And after really working with small businesses, when I was funding them back in the day, I saw that these were very simple ideas they were doing. So when Curtis was discussing Fixer, I was like, very simple business. We're fixing cars. We're adding technology on top of it. We just need to be trustworthy, have great customer service. And I was like, okay, this could work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then now we put in all the strength of our three experiences into it. That's all I need to do. And I was like, cool, let me go. So for me, 
I don't need that personal re- relevance or that that ownership, but for other people, they do. Yeah. How do you start to build out, you know, the strategy to think about how you'll solve the problem as because yeah. it's very easy for, you know, Curtis to just, oh, yeah, there was a mechanic at the house. So let me just do this. But then to go, okay, we actually need to build a platform that connects the, you know, the mechanics to the customers with us in the middle in some way. Can you run through how it actually works and then go? into just the strategy and thinking on how to build those those yeah. the, those linkages. No, I th- all of that happened over time. I mean, Curtis is an extremely intricate thinker, right? I'm sure he spent weeks and weeks going over this idea at every angle by the time he got got it to us and researching overseas. He looked at different platforms. He he really went in depth with it. So by the time the idea framed within his mind, he had fully researched it and seen how other people do it. For instance, there is an American version of the startup called Your Mechanic in the US. And just researching it, you can already tell what you need to do. But I think models, especially marketplaces, have been made famous by the likes of Uber and Airbnb that the model then already just existed for us mm. to copy, right? And that's how Fixer works. You, you book on the platform, you request a quote, we go to our suppliers, we get a quote, we give it to you. You say thumbs up. We utilize Dropper for our logistics. Dropper goes and picks it up and drops it off at the mechanic. Mechanic comes to you, fixes it. We're good. And it literally just works like that. Yeah. When you think about marketplaces and just the, I wouldn't say industry, but like the the opportunities that it's created for, you know, gig economy workers Mm. or people that aren't necessarily fully employed and also don't necessarily want to run their like a business that they want to scale or, build or grow in any ways. Mm. What do you think about that model itself? Yeah, look, I, I, I think though we do, we do romanticize it too much mm. because it's, it's open to unintentional abuse. I mean, I was reading a, an article the other day, a lady in, in Port Elizabeth was need, she, she's a baker, I think at, at one of the top retailers. She earned 2,500 rand, but it cost her 3,200 rand in transport to get to work. So she was paying the company to sort of work. Mm. So we, we look at gig economy workers and we think this is great. They're employed, but the net contribution to their household might actually be a negative. So it only makes sense at a certain point. I'm sure Uber was very profitable for drivers at the beginning when you were doing 10,000 cetera rides at a time. But the more drivers that come onto the platform, the less profitable it is for everyone else, you know? Mm. So I do think it is a great opportunity for short-term employment and for gig employment, but I think it's, it's open. I'll call it unintentional because everyone is trying to grow and do great things, but then eventually you reach a point where you've actually made it not so valuable for the guy on the ground as well. But that's what Fix is about. Our mechanics are people that are very good at their job but they are not digital. So we are the digital component for them. You can be a a mechanic with 15 years experience with all the necessary qualifications in Cosmo City. And now you are repair, you're doing a service on a Porsche in Santa. You would have never gotten that previously. So we do then provide this value and this growth for businesses on the ground, but we need to continuously be calculating, are we giving the right amount of value to the amount of mechanics? So you have to slow the amount of gig economy workers you're bringing in to the amount of customers you have. So we've got a set amount of a number that each one must earn and we try and keep it there and then it becomes valuable. Oh, that's, can you think about the challenges that you had just convincing, you know, this very analog, very traditional industry 
to go ahead, you actually can just use the app and we'll give you access to the customers that actually need your service. Yeah. How difficult or easy was it to really get these guys to say, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to commit to it and fulfill the jobs that you guys might, you know, put on the marketplace? Yeah, it's still highly difficult right now. And it it's less about the technology, but like you're saying, we have a certain way of working as mechanics and this industry. We have a way that we account for time. We have a way that we account for pricing. You are now standardizing that entire model for me. And you are also making me focus on customer service as opposed to that remuneration. So if you've got a warranty with Fixer, we're out there first time and we're fixing it. We don't get paid for that warranty time where we're coming to issue. You, the mechanic, don't get paid, but that's a customer service element. If someone's got a few more issues, hey man, just help them out. So you've got these great customers that are raving about you, but we're not getting all that money in because customer service is now a focus. Also, they've got set ways or tricks in the business that they make a bit more money. Now you can't do that anymore here because we've got the standardized approach. So it, it is difficult. The mechanics move between, I have this partnership, I'm building this business, and it's a short circuit for all of us to be like, hey, I'm doing something different. But eventually they see the value. You provide this great customer service. This guy keeps coming back to the point where it's like, hey, man, I only want Archie touching my car. Hey, I, you know, I only want Seaport touching my car. Then we're like, you see, this this is why it works. Yeah. yeah. What were the early things that you guys were doing to try and get these 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 mechanics onto the platform, but also starting to get customers to trust you as opposed to, you know, the traditional, let me just go to my nearest service station or anything yeah. like that? Look, I think it's a bit, we've got a Navy SEAL approach to mechanics. Ooh. Basically, we want the best of the best and a smaller portion of them. So we, we had one mechanic doing a significant amount of the work. And then we went for a second one. And then, you know, now we're about 25 across the country and we just really build it slowly. So it was easier convincing one or two, three people. We're not convincing a hundred. Now it's easier when we go out for a mechanic application or et cetera, we'll get like a hundred applications in a week. But before, we were just trying to find people that made sense to us. We sit with them, we talk with them. What was the thinking behind building it slow? Well, it, you know, this market has a significant amount of bad factors. It's got a lack of trust. You know, you've got a senses of manipulation of prices. You've got guys that will do funny things like, hey, they'll take something out of your car and put it in another car, etc. So we were very scared as well and, and cautious. We just wanted to find the great guy. And if he's doing well, hey, man, let's just stay with that guy. And then let's, let's keep it up. If we called up a client and they said, I'm an, or possible lead. And they said, I've got a mechanic and he's great. We'd be like, cool. You stay his customer. Can you give me him? Mm. <laughs> you know, and, and that's how we got the mechanics through referrals from leads that said, I'm fine. It's like, oh, you're fine. That means you have a great mechanic. Can you bring him through? Mm. Or best also a second place other than customers is go through mechanics. Give me a guy as good as you. That's a friend or your brother that you know and bring him in. Customers was a harder part. We were, we were, we were situated or a member of BNI. BNI is sort of a lead generation organization, but it's pretty awesome. So in BNI, each chapter, so say if you're in your Johannesburg chapter, you've got a set amount of businesses, but they can only be one of each type there. So if you're a painter, you're the only painter in that chapter. If you're a car repair, you're the only car repair in that chapter. And then you guys share leads with each other. So it's like, Hey, Mash, I know someone who needs audio visual support. Or, you know, hey, Moetu, I know someone who needs painting. And you literally share leads with each other and share each other's business. So that's how Fixit grew through that referral in BNI. And then from there, it was just word of mouth. 
and then search engines. But initially, people were very weird. Like we didn't have an address. We had this quirky thing that said, online, wherever you are. And then people were like, bro, where, where is your, where is your <laughs> headquarters? <laughs> what is this? Because you, you guys are coming into this as a startup, right? <laughs> yeah. And you're thinking in the startup, like thinking so like, like, oh, this is so quirky. Yeah, and like, yeah. everyone's going to enjoy this. Yeah. Whereas the traditional South African looking to try and get yeah. their car service is just like, yo, I need to go to a place. Yes. How complex was it to try and explain that part yeah. of, of things? Because yeah. this is a very different model to what people might be yeah. you know, familiar with. No, I think pre-pandemic, very difficult. We'd be on the call with husbands, uh, with fathers of students explaining what we do. And you'd find many of them are like, no, I'm not going to do that. Or... I need, a, they actually need a place to go shout when something goes wrong. They'll be like, I get that. But when something goes wrong, whose door do I knock on? Right? Or break down. Or break down. <laughs> it's literally like that. And then it's like, no, that, that things are, we're digital. We're digital. No, like, no, but like, Uber. and he's like, nah, man, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Post pandemic, very easy to explain. Very easy to mm. understand. Everyone was doing groceries. Everyone was doing digital. Check is 60, you know, as these things grow, it becomes easier to then explain your idea. Now, very easy to understand. That's so insane. How do you think of, you know, the experience of trying to build a startup during the pandemic when you have very physical touch points like a mechanic coming to someone's mm. house and having to fix their car and stuff like that? I think it was a blessing in disguise for us. We had to significantly, during the period where we had the lockdown, where it was sort of at its highest level and we couldn't operate, we used the quiet period to focus on operations. We were like, okay, we weren't profitable yet on, on trading profit scale, so on cost of sales. How do we speak to our suppliers and get discounts? Hey, man, who do we talk to to our, do our logistics? You know, and we hadn't been using Dropper yet at that time. And then we just really focused on going in on this business and tearing it apart and putting it back together in new ways. Then you had all these COVID protocols that needed this clinical, efficient, cleanly sort of approach. So all of that made this uh, company that was this great idea into this streamlined, you know, operation. And then also not being able to trade for four months, we got the impact of money. By the time we came out, we were focused on profitability. Even though we hadn't reached growth, we were very, very focused mm. on on money and keeping that tight. And then, yeah, so we came out of the pan pandemic, out of that lockdown, this very efficient operational organization that's just focused on growth, new deals with suppliers, et cetera. And they were more open because they also didn't have money. So they, they were willing to work with you. We had clear protocols for mechanics because now you need to watch out for the virus and, and everything that's going on. So I think the pandemic was very positive in, in that space where you had to build these operations that could work digitally without human interactions. Then we've got a CRM system. We never had that before, all these things. So it really helped us to make a strong organizational, you know. Yeah. When you think about, you know, the difference between growth and profitability, mm -hmm. can you just explain those two things? Because I do think that, you know, for most people, it's easy to think that that needs to be the same thing. Yeah. But startups think very differently about the two things. So I think Ash Moira, he, he sort of explains it the best in his sort of like philosophy on sort of startup metrics. A startup is built to deliver value to a customer, right? And that's the first primary thing, a value that's, he calls it being a badass customer. So you, you take this value, you deliver it to the customer and it makes them badass, you know? Then your, your second part of that is to then try get more and more people that want this badass value. And then your third part of that is try and deliver that at a cost, you know, that's lower than the, the money you're trying to receive. 
or you, you first focus on delivering value, then focus on monetization, and then you focus on profitability. And I think that's sort of how, how we look at, we started off at, as a loss leader in the business, but then we were focused on customer satisfaction and delivering this value. Logistical costs were sitting with us. Service costs were sitting with us. Customers paying next to nothing. If we did an inspection for you, we take that amount and then we'd also add it to your fix. Like if you do the fix with us, that 350 is added and you minus it. We're doing craziest thing to try focus on, on, on delivering customer value. Then post pandemic, it was like, okay, how do we deliver this value consistently, but at a, at a trading profit? So there's that first layer where you get your cost of sales, paying mechanics, parts, and et cetera, and then getting the revenue for a customer. And then that must be profitable. Your net profit, which is now paying salaries and all that and, and trying to be profitable there. That's, that's your, you know, golden standard. Once you, you know, got a net profit, you're really there. But our focus was trading profit and then efficiency. But I'd say the first priority is starting to be able to deliver value and then being able to deliver value consistent and then finding more people that want this value. So building that repeatability. Once you have repeatability, then you can figure out profit. Yeah. How do you guys think of scale and you know, are you guys even thinking about what it looks like to try and go, whether it's, you know, much deeper across the country or even across the continent? Yeah. So what we believe in terms of building a business, it's, it's a year by year thing. So you might say to yourself, I'm building a 10,000 rand business. And then you say next year, I'm building a hundred thousand rand business. And then I'm building a million rand business, you know, and Ash Moira also teaches that where you, you focus, you time boxing the type of business that you're building. So we definitely think of scale and think of growth, but we think about it year to year. Mm. So now what's our goal? We want to grow the business three times. That's all we think about. We don't think about then the, oh, you know, becoming a unicorn or et cetera. Just focus on this. Once you finish that goal for the year, okay, now let's do three times again, or let's do four times this time. And then we, 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 we look at that. So yeah, our goal now is to become the largest automotive technology company in the but we're still here in South Africa, only in four provinces. We're in Gauteng, Cape Town, Durban, and, and Kabeja. So we obviously want to go across South Africa. We want to go across Africa. We want to go into different places. But our clean focus now is 10xing the business. That's the goal for this year. And that's where we time box. What we'll do next year, we have a view of that. But now the focus is that 10x. Yeah. Yeah. How do you think of just, you know, the, the, when the challenges come and they do, and you guys need to make, you know, very clear decisions around, you know, we're building this great business. Yes. But we also need to provide families. And I'm talking about before you guys raise money. How did you guys navigate that time? And like when you do need to, you know, go back into corporate for a bit just to sustain yourself, you know, how do you guys manage those, those, those realities? Yeah. Look, I think there's also differing principles there. And I also think because people romanticize entrepreneurship. There's this thing of having both feet in, you know, someone explained to me, or are you a chicken or you're, or you're a pig? I pig. remember this. Yes. <laughs> I know this analogy. <laughs> pig goes in there dirty. Me, I'm very practical. I'm like, being hungry does not motivate at all. I work my best when everything else is comfortable so I can attack the problem. So having a steady salary, being able to pay my bills allows me to have a hundred hour works, you know, one of my early executives used to say that he's like, I want to pay you enough. So all you have to think about is work. And I think for, for at the beginning, we did try this kind of full-time thing, but it's like, you have kids, you have family, go work. We will work after hours. So we would work 
literally Monday to Sunday after hours. Our meetings are at 8 or 9 p.m. Our meetings are, are on Saturday at, at, at 9. We'd be at Curtis's house almost every weekend. We actually put in the amount of eight hour full-time hours, if not more, but working after hours. And that's how we split it. So we have a rule that the, the business must pull you inside. And the first person to be pulled inside was by Bulela as head of consumer and operations, because now the sales engine needed to be built, this call center and this customer center. Mm-hmm. Team. The next person to be pulled in was me at the end of last year. So came away to now growth and commercialization used to come in. Then Curtis is the one who's coming in last, not because the technology is not needed. We've built it up to a certain level, but he can code after hours. So we don't need you during the day and paying your salary. So we're just very practical about who goes in when. I'd rather, if if you need to answer calls, I don't need MASH to do that. MASH is an expensive resource. I can hire someone and pay them eight to 16,000 rand a month and they can do that. I don't want to pay you a, a higher salary to be able to do that. I mean, and a great thing that we always used to repeat is that the word on the street is the Yapishev founders were, were working full-time jobs until they had 40 employees. And that's only when they went into the business. So for me, it was stories like that. I'm like, that, that, that's the story we're following, mm. the Yapishev story. We're not going in the full-time first because now you're worried about paying yourself instead of growing the business. Yeah. So I just want to explain the pig and the chicken thing. Yeah. <laughs> so someone that is just like, yeah. chicken? So the story goes, you order breakfast, you get a, you know, eggs and bacon. The chicken contributed to the meal by laying the egg, but the pig contributed the bacon and paid with its skin. So technically the pig went all in and the chicken was basically just like a contributor. So if you ever hear about this, that's what. Bro, and people are telling you this thing and, I, you know, I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I'll, I'll do things when they make sense. And. There's so many of the startup analogies that I like to just say no to. Like mm. the founder is special. I'm like, no, I'm just another person. Mm. I'm not bestowed the powers of Thor because my name is at the CIPC. No. Yeah. You, know, I, you know, you must be full time. You must do this. You must do that. No. <laughs> yeah. So how do you then, you know, with this very different approach to it, right? Building slow by recruiting the right people that can provide the best service and having a consciousness to say you need to provide for your families and, you know, not worry about your needs while you try and build this. How do you then go to investors and say, hey, we're a startup, we're building this thing, but our situation is very different from what the typical story that people are telling is. And how do they receive it? You sell results. And I think that was our key thing. Our first initial before our first round of funding, we'd grown 600%. Our next round, we'd grown four times, et cetera. So our initial outline was, we've done this all while working full time. So what are you looking for? What number is, is mm. good for you? Do you want mm. 20X? Do you want 50X? You know, what, what number? So everything you're looking for, we're already providing working full time. What's the problem? You know, tell me the logic of why you want this full time. Mm. And then our first big investment was like, okay, one of you. And, and that was by Bulela, which is consumer and operations. And we're like, cool, we get that logic. He needs to be in there. But do you understand if the three of us come in, how shorter this runway is going to become? And not because everyone is trying to pay themselves good salaries, but because it, it, it's coming into human cost, things that I can do after hours. You know what I'm saying? So I, that's where we came. We just attacked the logic. Of these results that we're providing, which are you unhappy with, right? Mm. If there's nothing and this is working, what's the problem? If you're looking to grow, 
cool, put in more money and then we can do more things. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk about your, you know, journey of trying to raise funding for a startup? You know, what is that like? Yeah. And what are the sort of questions that are asked that you feel, you know, super critical, that was super critical for you to answer for them to really understand and trust that you guys were the right people to back? Yeah, I think there was some healthy experience within the financial space, within enterprise development. My Wilela also comes from that space as well. And I've been actively funding black-owned startups in the enterprise development division at Standard Bank. So we knew the framework, you mm -hmm. know, what the financials need to look like bank accounts, people find growth. They, you know, they don't find businesses, you know, they find growth. So for these targets, you know, became targets, not measures. So it's like, okay. And that's why I always speak about 3X, 10X, or what type of business you're trying to become. For us, those targets were to be able to help find, be like, okay, guys, we need to grow by 200% now. That looks attractive and it will look attractive to investors. We need to do this by being profitable. That's going to be attractive to investors. The first initial ones where everyone starts on these pitch competition and et cetera, it's customers. That's mm -hmm. all that matters. You know, there's a story of this guy in the free state, couldn't speak English well. At the startup competition, he just dropped a bag of receipts and then he won the startup competition. And that's the, <laughs> that's the thing. Because that's growth, right? Like, How do you argue with that? You can ask him, what's your IP? What's your strategy? He's like receipts. You know? <laughs> That's the focus is results, guys. And, 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 and that's what investors are looking for is results. If you provide that, the story becomes very easy because now it's like, okay, I use the team that I have and the resources that I have to make a million, right? Now, if you give me the same thing I have three times, I'm going to give you three times value. I'm going to get three million. And that's the conversation you want to have with the investor, not Hey man, I've got this great idea and it's going to equal this. You know, if we can just work together to get there, then we'll get somewhere. That should be a reality. It's a reality in America. And that's why they built so much. But we've got such a very traditional funding environment. Just throw the tradition at him, at them on top of the things that you're working on and you'll usually be fine. What would you say are these, like, these traditions? Like, yeah. being here's what you need to prove. Yeah. Besides risk. <laughs> perfect right besides the what you're putting aside is what you need <laughs> what you're putting aside is what you need so i mean the main thing is if, if, if someone wants to pay for this that's always the the number one number. if you can prove to investors that they are there's a significant amount yeah. of people that want to pay for this yes yeah. well, and that there's also a difference there it depends how high tech you are Mm -hmm. The closer you are to the consumer, the more that matters. The further you are, like I mean, if you're building some energy efficient, etc. That has different kind of implications, right? There is some ready available market, but you've got some innovative product. That's where IP matters. The closer you get to the customer, it's less IP and growth. Mm. For that one, it's like, show me numbers, you know? And, and, and that's what he needs to sit. But on top of that, financials. And I've had friends where we got funding at different places. And I'm like, come, this place is funding black-owned tech startups, IDF Capital, and I'm in. These guys are a great set of guys. Get your pitch deck right, get your financials right, and, and go. No one will go. Ah, man, Moetu, this is a bit thing. You know, I'm working on what I'm doing. Pitch deck, the financials, I'm not sure. It's like, guy, you're running a business. How do you not have financials? Mm. You know, even if it's just on zero, you know what I'm saying? And just, just show me some financials. Like, that's there. How do you not have a deck? You know, I'm cool. You don't have one. Here's the links. Here's the outline. Just do it. And I've found so many friends, close friends, that just don't even want to do that step but they want the money. And it's like, mm -hmm. how is that going to work? Yeah. yeah. Sure. What do you think is holding people back to think about those things? Because I do think that, you know, 
obviously your experience is also just, you know, already thinking about these things very deeply because yep. you you worked in a space that funded small businesses. Yep. So obviously these things are front of mind. But I, I would think that most people are also thinking about these things to make sure that they're prepared when they do eventually need investment and need to grow and need a partner that can come in and say, okay, yes, I would back this. No, they're not. I think there's a, there's a difference of working in the business and on the business. And there's a lot of in, right? Our advantage is we had three founders, right? It wasn't one guy. There's a few single founders that I know that are next level, right? Like Ayanda, the founder of Mowash. I'm like, how do you do what you do and you, you're alone, mm -hmm. right? I think the advantage of us, we had three. So we had three different focuses. I'm, I'm growth commercialized. I'm the finance guy. So I could think of this while Curtis is thinking product, while D is thinking operations, right? Because fundraising is a job on its own. So I think a lot of people aren't thinking about that. I'm building this awesome thing. I'm not thinking how I need to deal with compliance, how I need to do with finances and all that. And that's a strong part that a business leader needs to, you know, be, be, be comfortable. And I think a lot of people just, they think it's, there's an administrative hurdle with doing that, but it's sometimes it's a weekend's worth of work, you know, and if you keep your deck up to date, like for us, we try every three or six months, you just update it. You never know what you're going to do with it. Just update it every month. Financials need to be up to date. You might, you definitely are late some days, but just have those tick boxes. You never know where you're going to need them, but fundraising is a formula as well. This newsletter has some great stuff on that, but there's a cycle. It's March and September. That's the fundraising cycle in tech in the VC market. You need to know by March and September, I need to be ready. I need to have grown to a certain level. I need to have all my compliance docs ready. I need to have my pitch deck ready. And then you end the cycle. And then for us, raising is every two years. So you raise enough for a two-year period, and then you go another year. When you're raising at the beginning, it's a bit shorter, maybe year to year. So there's these principles and rules that you just need to follow for what is a pre-seed, what is a seed, what is a series A, what's a B and a C. And others that have gone further will tell you, I can only tell you from pre to seed. Now we, we, we're looking for the next two years to go to series A. So now we've learned what do we need to do a series A. And we're speaking to other gents, I mean, you know, friends at Pineapple, et cetera, like, how did you do this? And then you take those principles and now, okay, let's build a business that fits those checklists. And I think mm -hmm. people don't do that enough. You know, go to our relay, you know, and, and you, you go there and you say, okay, this is the checklist that I need to complete. Let me complete that. Then I go raise. Yeah. And what were the sort of questions that these guys are asking? Because I'd imagine that it is an extensive process. It can also almost be invasive. My previous guest in Parker said, you know, specifically with black startups, you typically have to show way more yeah. than what most other startups would show specifically because there's a trust factor that you just sort of need to, you know, break through. How do you feel about that experience? Yeah, that is pervasive across the entire financial industry, mm. right? Banking, commercial, development, finance, etc. Race is a psychological factor. Even dealing with a black person to a black person on the other side, they do the same thing if you watch it, which is also why I moved to technology space because I was like, human beings shouldn't be making a decision to find or not to find. <laughs> you know? It should just be fundamental. Yes. Right? Yeah. They are so emotional about it. You know, you would see people like they're very passionate about this coffee startup. Man, guys, let's fund this. Let's think it has none of the fundamentals. There'll be some agricultural business that's got all the right fundamentals. No, we need to get an expert researcher to come check this landscape up. I've been in, in some crazy meetings where people are like, 
we don't know how to fund black farmers. And I'm like, does the race make it different? <laughs> sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think it does make issue. I think VCs, especially when people funding tech startups, they're living in a fantasy land, right? I think there is a misalignment in, 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 in finance within South Africa and the rest of the world, but they always feel like they're funding Uber. They ask you all these crazy weird questions where it's like, bro, we're in South Africa. I'm building a startup and we are at seed stage. You are not doing a $400 million fund here. Mm-hmm. Just make the key principle decisions on whether this is an idea. People like it and there's some repeatability and there's an opportunity for growth and go, you know, but they'll be like, oh, what's your five point plan to reach 10x ARR? What, what, what? It's like a lot of these guys have not built businesses primarily. They have not taken the, the, the thinking and then aligned it to the South African landscape. And a lot of what's coming out in America now is that VCs are really, really bad at making good decisions on where to invest, right? Mm-hmm. They work on relationships. Some places have bad DD. We've seen what's come out of America. Oh, yeah. So all of these guys aren't really the smartest individuals in the box to be making finance decisions anyway. So there is a lot of the same questions is obviously, how how's your customer base looking? What problem are you solving? How big is the problem you're solving? How do you solve it? How's been your growth? What do customers think? Like, all right, give me a review of the customer voice that's sitting in there. Cool. Then once that's done, who's your competitor? Have you properly analyzed the competitive landscape and where you sit within it? And then from there, okay, what do you want money for and how much do you need? And what are you going to do with it? Cool. And that's usually the close of, of, of sort of a funding deck and, and what needs to come. Then there's the hack of, you know, how much for how much. Mm. Yeah. So as you know, your focus at Fixer, just bringing it back now, is growth and revenue and strategy. How do you look at your role and what it will look like in the next two years and the yeah. focuses that you have? Yeah, right now, I mean, going into the space where full-time sitting growth and commercialization is a very scary space because now this, this, this target, and I mean, why Bulelo was just saying last week, he's like, he's sitting up at night at 3 a.m. just thinking, what we need to build because now we need to take this startup of ours that's been has 1,200 customers and turn it to a place that does 7,000 customers in one year. That's more mm. than we've done in four. You know, now it's crazy. We need to be extremely aggressive, but at the same time, we need to manage profitability. So we need to be clinical. So you, you're just adding onto the fire, managing the fire, putting it out when it burns something. And that is just a constant every day. I mean, I was just thinking yesterday, I'm like, this is crazy. This is actual madness. <laughs> you know, by Wileno, you know, at himself, he's just like, the things we have to do are so scary right now. And people say that's a good feeling to have, but you now need to fill that fear with. So it, yeah, right now it's madness. I don't have a word for it. Everyone keeps asking me that. And I'm like, guys, ask me a few months from now. I have no idea. Right now, we're just trying to get as much of this work that we have off and ship and deliver solutions and find new customers and, and cold call and cold email and do all these things. And I'm just trying to stay in that repetitive, consistent loop. I don't want to think about what it means, right? How do you hope to, you know, when you look back at the end of this year, and I think I'm going to make a, a compilation of, these, of this question because I've <laughs> asked it to everyone that I've interviewed. When you look back on this year, what do you hope that you guys have achieved? And, you know, what is the vision that you guys hope to, you know, eventually be able to realize. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, the target for this year is 10x. We're growing the team. 
We're pushing on our technology. We're focusing on growth and marketing initiatives. We're beefing up operations. If we could have met that target or sit somewhere between 10x and 8x, that would be a freaking good year. Now, then we're gone. We're gone. We're now, we're all going to be the guys who will be seeing in the newspapers a few years from now. <laughs> we're there. I'm happy I got you early then. <laughs> we're gone. If we can reach that, if we can do that, I'd be freaking happy. But if we can sit somewhere between 5 and 6x as well, I think we would have had a good year. And the, the overall team be the largest automotive technology company. Thank you so much. Thanks. To access previous episodes of this podcast, but also again access to other shows on our network, please visit lucha.com.